0: back past in the 70s, were really working. And so the big, huge, everyone thought pollution came from big pipes, you know, the big smokestack, the big pipe, they ran into the water. And the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act had done their job in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of pollution out there from big sources, but we were still finding pollution that wasn't from those big sources. So my job was to figure out, okay, here's a list of pollutants. We're still seeing them and we know they're not coming from industry. Where are they coming from? So I'm looking around saying, oh, well, look, this isn't a product, huh? That product has a way to get into outdoor runoff or that product has a way to get into the sewer.
1: Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%
2: part of the San Francisco Estuary Institute. I'm going to talk about pollution from tire particles. So Kelly, welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to share information about my research.
2: Yeah. How did you get here? It sounds like a very specific focused thing to not only look at, I guess, what are called micro and macro plastics, but from tires specifically. How did you get to where you're at?
0: It's a long and winding path. I got my PhD back at a time where there weren't a lot of good career opportunities in academia and research for women. So I wandered all over the place doing various kinds of work and wound up working at a local government agency where we were trying to figure out where pollutants were coming from and getting into water. So getting into the water that flows from the indoor pipes to sewage treatment plants and the water that flows outdoors um, in most of our country in the U.S., um, it flows into storm drains out in the street and those drain directly into creeks. And to the ocean or bays, wherever rivers, wherever you are. And what we were finding this this is actually a a really cool thing because our environmental laws back passed in the 70s were really working. And so the big, huge, everyone thought pollution came from big pipes, you know, the big smokestack, the big pipe they ran into the water. And the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act had done their job in a lot of ways. There's still a lot of pollution out there from big sources, but we were still finding pollution that wasn't from those big sources. So my job was to figure out, okay, here's a list of pollutants. We're still seeing them and we know they're not coming from industry. Where are they coming from? So I'm mm-hmm. looking around saying, "Oh, well,, look, this isn't a product. Huh? That product has a way to get into outdoor runoff, or that product has a way to get into the sewer. So I was kind of a chemical detective. So back during that era, one day I got a phone call from a fellow in the Seattle area named Dave Galvin. And he Hmm. said, Kelly, I'm working on something and I'm wondering if you know anything that can help me. He found that uh, fish that were coming back, the coho salmon were coming back to spawn in their streams and it would rain and the fish would die this horrible death. And he was trying to figure out what was killing them. They were fine until it rained, but they come back and actually go stream when it's raining. And he knew I was looking into this water pollution related to products and said, Kelly, is there some product out there that could be killing our coho salmon? So I said, well, here's what I know. And I was looking at pesticides. I was looking at pollutants in vehicle brake pads. So we talked about a bunch of those things. And he was working with a group of researchers in the Seattle area at NOAA Fisheries, their science center. So they started testing various chemicals that we knew were an urban runoff. And every few months, I'd get another call and say, it wasn't that pesticide you were thinking about, but could it be something else? So we would talk through all the stuff that might be coming off onto roads and into runoff. And that led over a course of years for them to finally figure out that if they shaved material from tires and put that in water and then exposed the fish to that water, that they died the same kind of death. And that took that was a huge, long time. So over this course of years, I'm getting these phone calls periodically, first from Dave, then from a fellow named Nat Schultz. And we'd look through and try to figure this out. What is it that's getting out there in the urban environment? And interestingly, it was tires. So around the time they figured out it was tires, which was only less than a decade ago, it turned out that I had been working on water pollution from vehicle brake pads and that's a whole other story for another day. But um, I um, also started looking into tires because there's uh, water pollution from a metal in tires, zinc, and that's one of many sources of zinc into urban runoff. So I knew a bit about tires, and I said, wow, tires might actually kill. That's just amazing. So I really wanted to know more about it.
2: Yeah, when you talked about runoff, I'm from New York, and um, from what I understand, I don't know if it's true, but you know, if it rains heavily enough, water that was supposed to go to the water treatment plan, again, gets shunted directly to some of the rivers and estuaries. So maybe that's why in Seattle that would happen when it rained is all, all of a sudden all this pollution gets shunted into these you know, bodies of water or directly, I guess, it runs off into the body of water.
0: Yeah, it's um, so that's a really interesting thing in older cities, including, I'd uh, say, New York, Cleveland, you know, older cities around the US and in most of Europe in the cities. The outdoor runoff from streets, when it flows into a drain, that drain goes to a sewage treatment plant that's not modern drainage. Uh, So for 90 percent of the population in the U.S. and all of the western U.S., uh, most of the U.S.'s big cities and even suburbs in older cities, the water flows into storm drains that are separated from the sewage treatment plant, and those storm drains flow directly into creeks and surface water. And the reason for that separation is because of those overflows that you're talking about. If you mix the the stormwater with the sewage, then you've got sewage coming out everywhere. So at least this is just the water that's running off through those separate pipes. And you don't have the sewage overflows when you have the separated systems we have in modern drainage areas. So the problem is that stormwater is picking up all the pollutants that are on any outdoor surfaces and washing them along off along with the water into the creeks which was not something that people were thinking about when they're designing these systems.
2: Is there a, any practical solution that filters that would only come into use when a storm is coming or there's a that's, sudden uptick in particular pollutants?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the, the things that um, we started figuring out as a society back in the 90s, was that we're just not gonna be able to treat every drop of water that makes it into our oceans, our rivers and our creeks and bays. It's just going to be too expensive. It would be billions and trillions of dollars. So we have to pick where we're gonna do that kind of treatment. So that means not every drop of runoff is going to be able to be treated. We can treat it in certain places, and we can try to pick those places to either protect the most important habitat or to deal with runoff from those places that have might be the most outdoor pollution. But well, we aren't going to be able to treat it all. And if we tried to take that runoff and put it into sewage treatment plants, then we have this horrible overflow with sewage too. So we don't want that, and we do want the runoff to run off because we don't want flooding where we live.
2: Mm-hmm. Including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I know it's uh, just a way out, wacky idea, but you know, in college, I, I did chemical engineering and we we studied uh, distillation towers, and they had what was called a reflux. So they take part of the effluents and recirculate it back into the system. And that allowed them to get, you know, higher purity of a various and better separation of chemicals. What well, what do you think would happen if there was like a reflux on the outlets to some of these storm drains or part of it was directed back into the, the storm system? So it cycled through again. And part of it goes out as the effluent. You think then there'd be a chance to have more water mixing in to dilute things more to make them less hazardous? Or do you think that would make things worse?
0: Well, I'm going to step back and, and answer that in a little different way. The thing about outdoor runoff is that when it rains, it's a huge amount of water all at once. So it's not very amenable to being treated because what you want to do when you treat something is have a little bit of water all the time, constantly through a small system. Trying to catch millions and hundreds of millions of gallons and do anything with it from an urban area is just impossible, so it's not something that's easy to do. The ways that urban runoff is typically treated is through vegetation. So we'll want to run it through a swale, put it through a pond, maybe take an area what they call a, a rain garden. The fancy name for it is a bioretention system where you put the water in, it's got pretty plants and so forth, and then the just the dirt around the plants filters out a lot of the pollution before it gets cleaned, and then there's an underdrain that goes to the storm drain system. But on a practicable basis, stormwater is just exceptionally difficult to treat. And that is why much of my career has been focused on figuring out where the pollutant is coming from, because it's so much more cost effective for society and just practical to try to get those pollutants out at the source of the pollution instead of trying to clean it up out of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of gallons of water afterwards.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So are you focused on tires then and the pollution that they? you know, put into the waterways or are you focused on many other sources?
0: Well, I do work on emerging contaminants and microplastics in general. My special focus is on tires and tires contain chemicals as well as the rubber. And the pollution they create is both chemical pollution and microplastic pollution. So the microplastic pollution is the little bits of tire material when it wears. And I got into this because after getting those phone calls and finding out about this toxicity, Uh, At the same time, my colleagues at the San Francisco Estuary Institute, before I started there, were just wrapping up a really big study to try to understand what the sources were of microplastics to San Francisco Bay and to the ocean. So they, they did this amazing study looking at all the different pathways and all the way through the system. And they did something for the first time that had never been done anywhere else, which was that they collected their samples using a much finer filter. So when you collect a sample for microplastics, you run it through a filter and you collect the microplastics in the filter. If your filter is too big, all the tire particles come through. So you can get bigger nuggets of plastic, but the tire particles are really small as compared to other kinds of microplastics. And they were running through the filters in most of the studies that had been done. Here, because they used a smaller filter, the filter turned black when they were measuring the stormwater runoff and measuring water from our creeks. And they said, why is this happening? They went out and started talking to people about it. And when I learned about it, I said, I know exactly why that's happening. It's because it's tires, those little rubbery particles you're seeing, that black stuff that's tires, and you're catching it because you've got that small filter. So yours is the first study that was capable of catching tires. So now we know, because of the work of the San Francisco Estuary Institute, and now a number of other organizations, that tires are the most common microplastic, and they may be the most emitted microplastic in the world.
2: When you talk about filter size, what's the the sweet spot of the filter? I'd, I'd heard from other pollutants that uh, about one micron, at least for breathing in pollutants, is a uh, you know, a horrible sweet spot, meaning it gets lodged in tissues and can cause a lot of damage. But what do you see in terms of the size distribution? Is which sizes are bioactive and what size filter really gives you a good insight into what you're getting?
0: Well, there's a practical limit in filtration in terms of collecting sand, and the collecting particles because there's there's dirt and other things in water. So if you go too small then you're just collecting all kinds of stuff and it makes it really hard to find the microplastic particles. So that's actually a whole active area of conversation about how are we gonna quantify these really small particles? Because tire particles go all the way down into the nanoparticle range. So in terms of water and people are really different environments. So for people, a big exposure for microplastics is breathing. And that's what you're talking about, about 10 microns and one micron, what goes in the air and then we're breathing. My work is mostly focused on the water where we're trying to figure out what kinds of uh, particles organisms are exposed to. And importantly, how those little particles carry the chemicals around and deliver them to various parts of the ecosystem.
2: And you mentioned that tires not only have rubber, which I guess is like the backbone material, just like a, a soda bottle, I guess PET is the backbone material, but you have all these other additives. I, I know in like in soda bottles, you have plasticizers, colorants, uh, you know, flame retardants, et cetera. So what is the, you probably can't name them all, but what are some of the major chemicals and tires that can cause problems to organisms?
0: Yeah, you're right. So tires, the rubber and tires is about, um, if you take the material of a tire, the rubbery, the part that looks like rubber, it's about 40 to 60 percent actually rubber. There's another 20 to 35 percent that's fillers and other reinforcing agents that make that stronger. And then the other ingredients are other kinds of chemicals. There's some oils in it to to give it that kind of softness that's good without it falling apart. And there's chemical additives, some things they call vulcanization agents that help polymerize the rubber so it stays strong. So the things that are most interesting from the environmental perspective are the various kinds of additives and some of the contaminants in the ingredients. So some examples of that are zinc, benzothiazoles, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, and then the, the chemical associated with the fish kills um is a preservative it's called um 6ppd and one of the issues with the um the, all these chemicals in the environment is that they can transform after they've been released. So it starts as this preservative, and then when it's exposed to air, it transforms. And one of the chemicals it transforms into is called 6-PPD quinone, and it's that chemical that's toxic to the coho salmon. So the tire manufacturers aren't, you know, they, they certainly aren't deliberately adding something that's going to be harmful to fish, but they had no idea that their ingredient transformed that way in the environment and was killing the coho. That was a a huge surprise to them.
2: Why do they add that ingredient? What's its use?
0: It keeps the tires from falling apart when they're exposed to air. So mm. every every ingredient in a tire is, is except for the contaminants that might be coming along with some of the ingredients. That these ingredients are deliberate. They're putting together and formulating the tire so that it will be strong and safe. It'll grip the road well. It will do all of those things. It will last for years so your tire doesn't fall apart while it's on your car. That's a very thoughtful and complicated process. What has not happened in the past is that tire manufacturers, I'm sure they think some about the environmental properties of the chemicals, but our work is suddenly causing them to have a much deeper understanding of the fact that the chemicals and these particles are wearing, and how and how broadly they're distributed in the environment, and the ways they could potentially cause harm. So there's a whole set of science that's developing that will help the tire manufacturers be able to review their ingredients and see if there are safer alternatives. And in fact, the California state government is about to challenge tire manufacturers to do that with regard to this preservative, to seek a safer alternative so that we can protect salmon in California.
2: Can you tell, is it just regular car tires, truck tires, um, any particular kind of tire that is a worse offender than another?
0: That's a really good question too. So there are some differences in formulation. Um, Honestly, all tires have different formulations because there are several key, there's four major manufacturers and a bunch of smaller manufacturers, and all of them have their own formulations and they're formulating for all kinds of different reasons, including where they get their chemical feedstock. So it's super complicated. Then there's also different formulations depending on the customer for the tire. So there's different requirements for a truck tire, say, than for a passenger car tri-tire. And a sporty tire might be different than one that goes on an electric vehicle that's really fuel efficient. So lots of different kinds of tires out there. They also um, have different sizes and they drive different distances. So one of the things that um, our team has recently done was to estimate the amount of wear on tires and so the amount of material that's wearing off of tires every year. So, and that is an exercise. So basically when you drive your tire, your car, so when you drive your car, you're tire wears off slowly. And by the time you replace the tire, a big fraction of the weight is gone. So for a typical passenger car tire that starts at maybe 26 pounds, it loses about three pounds tread weight before the car tire is replaced. So that stuff goes somewhere. For big tires like bus and truck tires, those start at like 120 pounds. They can lose 15 of material before the end of life. So this translates into um, in California, we estimated that about 250 million pounds a year of tire wear material is wearing off each year. And to put that in perspective on a per person basis. So that's the equivalent of two to three kilograms or around five or six pounds of tire material for every person in California every year wears off and goes out into the environment. So it's a lot The mix of which tires wear off more is is, um, not completely clear from the data sets that we have, um, but all of the different kinds of cars, SUVs, heavy trucks all have significant wear amounts. So there's not one that's dominant. And the same thing with the chemicals, that the chemicals will be proportional to the amount of wear. So all of the different kinds of tires are big contributors.
2: What about a uh, seasonal variation in the winter? Is it more likely that the tires will become embrittled or throughout a tire's life, does it become more embrittled and does it shed material faster? You know, has anyone studied this?
0: No, that is, there have been a lot of studies that are report various factors and how hard, how much wear comes off. So what conditions wear the most, you have driving faster, wider tires, heavier vehicles, create more wear. Uh, there are different kinds of tires in some parts of the year or some parts of the year, some parts of the world in the wintertime. So we don't have this here in California, but in in Canada, for example, in Norway, people put on winter tires because their summer tires do become brittle in the wintertime. So they actually change out their tires. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a really important thing, not, not to drive the wrong kind of tire. And that's a safety reason. So I'm not aware of any systematic study looking at temperature. One thing that's important to remember is that when you drive your vehicle on the road, the tires will get warm just because you're driving. So if it's close to freezing, the edge of the right on the outside might be close to freezing at first, but things get warm as you use them. So the environmental temperature might not actually be the temperature that the tire is experiencing.
2: Okay. So in the area you're in, near the estuary what does the seasonal variation look like is there a rainy season does that correlate with you know more tires more tire material again entering the system because it's being washed into the system in the summer you know is there a lot more solar radiation and that's breaking down the tire material as the cars sit there and as they drive like has anyone again characterized just based on season what what you'd expect to see in the resulting pollution
0: we did a, a study, we call it a conceptual model, which is just scientists speak for looking at how the material comes off the tires and works its way through the environment and winds up in water and it's a story. So when when you drive your vehicle, little bits of tire material wear off all the time. It's all coming off. Most of it lands within about 20 feet of the road. Some of it falls right on them. Some of it goes up in the air. Then the next car comes along and they're rolling over those same little bits of tires. So maybe they're spewing it back up in the air. They're breaking it down a little more. So some of it becomes very fine. So a lot of the tire particles that come off in terms of number of particles become very, very tiny and they can travel large distances through the air, hundreds of miles. And that's why you find tire particles on mountaintops and in the ocean and in the Arctic and things like that. Most of the mass of tire wear particles stays pretty close to where it fell on the ground. And that stuff lies out there in the environment after it gets spewed around, so it kind of spews off the road. If you live in a snowy area, you can see that black stuff on the snow next to the road after a few days after a snow, it starts looking pretty disgusting. That black stuff includes tire material. So that stuff spews up and it lands on the ground, stays there for a while until it rains or in case of snow, in case of snowmelt. So it has some time to be exposed to air. So maybe some chemical changes occur. That's part of the time when that 6-PPD-quinone, the coho-killing salmon part of stuff, chemical, can form. And then when it rains, some of it will wash off and it will get carried by the water into a storm drain where it often flows untreated straight into the creeks or estuary or ocean. So that's the flow pattern for it. Some of the material stays on the land. In fact, most of it probably winds up getting stuck in soil. You know, it's dirt somewhere. A little bit will get picked up by a street sweeper. But the part that washes off is the part that gets into the aquatic ecosystems. The tiny little ones that can fly a long distance, those nanoparticles are very small part of the emissions, but an important part for people, not just because it can transport really far, but those very small particles can move around. They're in the air that we can breathe. They're in the dust in people's homes.
2: So what uh, I asked, uh, actually I spoke to a researcher that's working in Canada, PhD candidate. Maybe that's where we found you. And she was analyzing again how tires get into the rivers there and they seem to be held in the snow and when the snow melts it gushes a whole bunch of material into the rivers. But I mentioned to her perhaps there is certain road features that would cause the tires to wear a lot faster. You know, if a road has a lot of potholes or if the uh the grain of the maybe it's not it's not covered in asphalt, it's just concrete roads, other again, tire road or surface feature interactions that would cause a lot of material to come off and accelerate this problem?
0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, there have been a bunch of studies. None of them quantified the various effects. Uh, Certainly pavement surface, cornering, braking, high speed, Mm -hmm. things like that, vehicle weight, a lot of different factors that affect tire emissions. So it's not one uniform thing. When you're averaging it over a large urban area, to some extent, that's it. It it all is going to average out in some way because we've got so many cars doing so many different things. So that's why trying to fix every bit of pavement, trying to tell every driver, brake gently, don't accelerate too much, that's probably not feasible. That's why we're thinking a lot about the options that deal with looking upstream. There's a whole bunch of different ways that we can tackle this pollution, even as we're learning to understand it, what it means, how extensive it is in terms of the harm that's created by the chemicals and the particles from tires. It's also a really great time and there's a bunch of work going on to understand what might be done to prevent this kind of pollution. There's a wide variety of different options that I think are really promising. And it's just very exciting to think that this is a a pollution problem that we don't have to live with for the rest of our lives. We don't have to live with this pollution to have cars. We can solve it.
2: Well, how, what what are some of the ideas that came to you?
0: There's some, a whole variety of really great options. The, our, we completed a study where we examined a variety of mitigation options. Since then, there's actually been several other papers as well, and everybody's kind of honing in on the same sets of, of practical things that could be done. They range all the way from upstream prevention, downstream to how do we remediate or clean it up? And I'm going to start with the prevention part because that's the stuff that's probably societally going to be the most cost effective. So there there's prevention around chemicals. So I mentioned how through the scientific work that's going on, manufacturers are coming to understand how the chemicals they put in their products might cause pollution. And therefore, that can help them understand how to pick chemicals that are going to be the least polluting possible. Uh, California has a special program that actually affects the formulation of products across North America called the Safer Consumer Products Regulatory Program. So they're uh, poised to it uh, Regulate this, um, the chemical that it's associated with the salmon kills. They're also examining regulation. Another chemical, the one that got me first interested in tires, is zinc. And they're looking at other chemicals in tires and in conversations with manufacturers. And the industry has really stepped up and is seeking to understand what's going on here. They're supportive of actually being required to act to protect the coho salmon and really want to make their products safer. You hear that in the conversations with them. So that's one approach, making the chemicals safer. The other part is, can you make tires wear less? So in Europe, there's a lot of concern about the plastics, probably more concern than the chemicals, which is what we talk about more here in the U.S. So the European Commission recently proposed a regulation to limit the amount of wear material from tires as a way of reducing microplastic emissions. So that's a prevention measure. The less tires wear, the less microplastic pollution in the first place. So we get safer chemicals in them Mm -hmm. and less wear. That's a starting point. Obviously, anytime we... For climate change, a lot of folks are saying we should really need to drive less anyway, so anytime we do that, that's really helpful. Anytime we take rail transit, for example, and instead of driving, that's, you know, we're not even using tires, but even putting a bunch of people on a bus is way less Per capita emissions. So that's also really super. So, stepping down the chain, the next kinds of things, in addition to just requiring manufacturers to reduce the amount of wear from their tires, which I should say Michelin claims that they have done quite a bit of work in that area. And there are data from testing tires um, from a German testing system that show that Michelin tires are systematically less wear than other kinds of tires, which is very interesting. They, so we know that's feasible, but in addition to that, there's things we can do on the consumer end and some of them are being implemented. You know, For example, um, my new car has a uh, tire pressure monitors. So if I keep the tire pressure up and, according to the manufacturer that reduces the amount of wear. There's exploration to a different tire design called airless tires. And it's thought that those by always being at the perfect pressure would wear less. Hmm. So so those are some upstream things. Then in the middle, there's a really intriguing possibility, which is there are, to my knowledge now, at least three companies that have different designs with the same purpose, which is to collect the emissions right on the car. So they've got different things that they install near the wheel and basically suck in the wear debris right when it's generated. So then they collect it in a unit and you could pull that back out and perhaps make that back into new tires. So those aren't going to collect 100 percent of the emissions, but they could collect a lot of them. So between all of those things, we could get safer tires, less emissions, and then collect a lot of those emissions. If we do all of that, then there's a lot less to clean up in the environment afterwards. But there are some ways to do some protecting and cleaning up. So one of them, as as we talked about, is to um, treat urban runoff. So, for example, if we've got roads that are crossing streams that are sensitive habitat, say for salmon, uh, we could treat the runoff there to make sure that the, it's really clean before it gets into those creeks or rivers. Um, another thing that we can do that may help is some changes in road design in certain areas and street sweeping practices. I'm not sure how practical those are going to be because repaving every road to make it porous and suck up tire particles probably isn't feasible, but it could be done in some places. And there's some question about how well street sweeping is really going to work on collecting tires because I talked about how that material gets spewed all around and off the streets.
2: What about the tires themselves? Could they be once a year along? Let's say like when you renew your car registration and they do the checks, could they spray something or coat the tires with something to reduce the wear? And if that was done once every year or two years, what would that
0: do? Anything you put on the outside of a tire wears off right away. So that's, I mean, the whole design of a tire is actually to wear off a little bit. So spraying Mm -hmm. something on the outside would just put that something into stormwater. It wouldn't reduce the amount of wear. Yeah, but street sweeping is an interesting thing. We do that anyway, and we pick up litter and other things with street sweeping. So uh, we're um, embarking with some colleagues um, in Southern California to do a study to examine whether the newest street sweeping designs are better than the old ones at picking up bits of tires. And that might end up being part of the solution, too. So basically, I think there's this huge menu of options, and if you put them all together together, you could dramatically reduce the amount of pollution from tires.
2: Oh hey Kelly, I lost you for a second. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay, yeah, if you just uh, if you wouldn't mind just repeating the last uh maybe four or five seconds please.
0: So basically, there's a lot of options for reducing pollution from tires and if we put them all together starting with making them safer and reducing their wear, collecting them on vehicles and then cleaning up particularly in areas that are sensitive, there's a lot we could do for the world and really reduce the pollution from tires.
2: Hmm. Excellent. Okay. Well, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
0: I, uh, we have a website, uh, San Francisco. It's www.sfpi.org microplastics. And our information about our work is on that site. So check it out for more information.
2: Okay. Well, very good, Kelly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I'm glad that you, uh, you specialize in a certain area of, you know, macro and microplastics because there's so much to know. And there's so much that isn't known in this field that it uh, requires people like you to really, you know, look in deep and figure out ways to to stop the, or reduce this, this plastic pollution. So again, it's been very good to talk to you and thank you.
0: Well, thank you. It's really fun to share my work and to let people know that, Although we're really concerned about data that are showing that both the tire particles and the chemicals in tires are harmful for all kinds of different aquatic organisms and might be an issue for people. Don't know about that yet. There's work underway that is learning to understand this, to help inform design and manufacture, and that there's real promise to end this pollution, really tackle it in a way that will be effective and protect society and our environment.
2: Very good. Well, thank you again for coming, Kelly. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to share my work. I greatly appreciate that opportunity.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else?